You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Have you um, ever experienced the gift of uh, prophecy uh, in your life? Uh, Prophecy, I think the best way to explain it is just God speaking to you. Um, uh, Inside of the context of the Bible, not ever competing with the Bible, but in a conversational way that God speaks to you, um, whether it be through dreams or whether it be through promptings or the guiding of your peace. Like God, being a relational God, wants to speak to his kids and all throughout the Bible, God is talking. Um, There's a a preacher you guys probably know of, Matt Chandler. He probably lands on more of the reform side, you know, um, uh, in circles and camps of people that would be more cessationalist, believing that the gifts have ceased. Tells a great story on a sermon I heard him give on, on prophecy. He was after an elders meeting. They said, here's a good idea for elders meeting. We should just pray, Lord, what do you want to do through us today? And so um, he sat down. This is Matt Chandler and his elders there and his wife, uh, I think ended up joining later on to this, but um, wrote down the name of a street. It was like S23 in Texas. And the name of this restaurant, I can't remember, it was a burger joint. And it was African-American male with gray pants, black shirt, and pigtails. That's all that he had. And so uh, he called himself kind of like a bibliologist or whatever. Like he, he, he's not a, a big prophetic words, you know, guiding words of knowledge type of a person. And so he, he went along his way with this elder and they went to this restaurant and there's no African-American guy. There's no black shirt. There's no pigtails. There's no gray pants. And just kind of sat there. Um, and, uh, and his wife, Lauren, was there. And his wife said, well, why don't we wait? You know, uh, sometimes, um, you know, there's the Holy Spirit and then there's, there's your wife. And just after the Holy Spirit, you listen to your wife just after that. And so they, they waited uh, for a little while, and uh, lo and behold, wouldn't you know, that uh, in, within 10 or 20 minutes, there's African-American male, black shirt, gray pants, walks into the, into the thing. And he said he made this really weird, awkward type of eye contact that only if you were the type of person with a prophetic word staring at somebody that you thought you were supposed to talk to would give a person. And it was the most awkward thing ever, and he went and sat down. Uh, after they ordered uh, for a little, you know, and, and kind of talked and ate, uh, the guy comes over and taps the other elder on the shoulder and says he wants to talk to him, right? So uh, they go off and talk to him, and they, you know, go in the corner, and then here they come back, and they go and sit down, and the other says, you tell him what, what you just told me. You tell him what you just told me. He's like, hey, you know, my name is Terrence. He said, uh, I don't know, you know, what I'm supposed to tell you, but basically what just happened is I went and grabbed, you know, your elder guy, and I wanted to let him know that um, there was a person um, that while we were at that church, this other church with the elder, there, um, there was an incident that you probably remember um, where uh, my daughter was abused by, um, by uh, another uh, person in, in our community. And um, I just wanted to let you know that I was thankful for the way that you prayed for our daughter and prayed for our family. And I wanted to let you know that today, I'm actually, um, she's been arrested on drug charges and I'm actually like fighting for her, um, uh, for her innocence and try, fighting to protect her. And I've been praying all day. And uh, I just was asking God to show me that he cared and that he was with me. And uh, Matt Chandler just like took out the piece of paper and, you know, and, uh, and, he, and it says, you know, African-American male and black pants and gray shirt and, and pigtails, the, the way that the girl used to wear the pigtails. And the guy just starts sobbing, you know. And so um, uh, there's, something, um, there's something different, right, when the scripture obviously is relevant to all of our everyday lives. Uh, and in terms of its application, the scripture is about us. But God also, through the scripture and through people, because he's relational, wants to talk to us, you know. And so I've had all sorts of different um, situations. I know coming into ministry at a church called Crossroads, um, I was sharing um, at a lunch one time that I kept having this dream about this alligator and this bear. 
I mean, over and over and over again. And the guy like couldn't put his you know, fork to his mouth because he's like, there's two other people on staff right now that continue to have dreams about this alligator and this bear. And it kind of had to do with like conflict with all, within the uh, staff and the organization that ultimately was able to get worked out. Um, I remember uh, once um, when I was a teacher in, in, in Southside High School having a dream um, about trying to rally and gather a bunch of children um, in three different rooms. There's partitions between each room, and one of them uh, was a living room with a couch and a TV, and I couldn't get the kids to all come around in a circle. And then the next one was a classroom with a whiteboard and a projector, and I couldn't get the kids to kind of come together. And then the last one was a stage, and, and it was coming into that last partition that finally all the kids in that dream were able to kind of circle up. And... Um, I remember, you know, waking up out of that dream and, and just sensing, sensing uh, where there wasn't before this urgency, not just to teach, but to preach, to be a preacher. Um, and I hadn't preached anything at that point, or wasn't really a preacher um, of any sort. And so um, what do you make of all this kind of stuff? Obviously, there's squirrely things that are just the bad pizza I ate and the tacos uh, that I ate, or maybe some selfish ambition that somebody is trying to manipulate you by telling you that you ought to marry them uh, because God told them to. You know, what do you make of this gift of prophecy like like, it's, it's, it's beautiful, it's profound, it's relational, but it's also dangerous and risky. And so some of us would rather have all of it, or some of us would rather have none of it. Uh, but kind of walking the dance of wisdom is hard. Um, as far as I can tell, just by basic way of experience, and I want to read a couple of scriptures to you as well, but one of the reasons why prophecy exists is because it shows you that God is real. Like, he could have had you just go to the taco place or the burger place and just talk to the guy and give him the same amount of encouragement and just pray for him. I mean, really, that's all that was executed, right, in the deliberation plan was that Matt Chandler was going to go there and pray for the guy, and there's 19 other ways to do it. But if you do it through prophecy, he knows that God knew what was going to happen and actually was had his, had his hand in making it happen and getting him there. If the prophecy doesn't happen, he doesn't know that God's real or he doesn't sense it in a real way. To know that prophecy is relational, that God is talking to you, makes you realize that not only that God knows what's going to happen, but he wants you to know that he knows what's happening which is relational, and that's not happening without prophecy. And lastly, prophecy, I think, is unifying because it's not only that Matt knew, but the elder knew and the wife knew, and all of them all knew simultaneously and could all point to one God leading multiple people to the same place at the same time to see who he was together, and that's the God of unity that we have. And so um, this is just a quick little spark notes up there on the screen of, um, of what I'll call you know, New Testament prophecy or what Paul says to prophesy in part. Prophecy in the New Testament is different from the Old Testament because we're not testing what Isaiah says. Isaiah prophesied Scripture. Nobody in this room through the Holy Spirit is going to prophesy Scripture, right? So the canon is closed on that, and so prophecy is not Scripture. Prophecy is, you know, God speaking to his people through Scripture in a conversational way, but it will never contradict Scripture. And so the way that Paul talks about it is that we prophesy in part but not in whole, meaning we see some of it but we don't see all of it, and none of it is higher than the Word of God. A couple of thoughts, though, for prophecy is, number one, prophecy is a gift and not a reward. Prophecy is not for Jedis. It's for children. And he can speak to anybody, anybody, anytime, however he wants to do it. And it's not anything to do with how much you fast and and strain and sing and all these other things. Like, he's going to speak to how how he wants to speak because it's gifts and not a reward. And there there needs to be several categories for it because if you conflate the categories, you can say, oh, prophecy is only this or it's not prophecy if it's not that. There's, There's a really wide umbrella demonstrated in the New Testament of what prophecy is. Number one, prophecy is, at some point, telling the future. So prophecy is foretelling. So Agabus in the book of Acts we'll read about today was already proven as a prophet when he prophesied that there was going to be a famine in the land. He proves, again, that he he knows Paul's future before it ever happens. And so prophecy is future telling, and that still exists in the New Testament. Number two, not just that it's foretelling, but it's also forthtelling. You can be in a, in a sermon like this, and somebody could be preaching, and they're like, how did you read my text message without getting my phone out and David Blaine reading my text message? How did you read my mail? And there isn't any mail reading, right? Like, it's just the Spirit of God taking what is being spoken in a church service and applying it directly to your heart in a way that makes you feel like you're singled out. 
And that's foretelling. That's, that's prophetic. To apply the Bible is prophetic. And then also, prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14 is just every time you open your mouth and encourage somebody towards Jesus, that can't be Satan. So that's encouragement. It's fortifying. It's reminding you of the truth. It's all three of those things. And, and it can be any one of them at any different time. Secondly, in Thessalonians, it says to not despise prophecy. And as a personal remark, I could tell you that I've had enough rough encounters with prophets and prophecy that I'm tempted all the time to despise prophecy. I'd rather just not deal with it. But that's why the scripture includes to not despise it because it's a gift. And why would we despise something that God wants to give us? Rather, we should desire and test it. Desire it while we test it. 1 Corinthians 14 says, I hope that all of you prophesy. Same way that I hope you all grow up talking to your parents, right? And, and have a healthy relationship even when you grow, grow away for college. Like you should continue to talk to the father because he's relational. But at the same time, know that there's other voices out there and you need to test the spirits as First John says. And so here's my rendition, the, the kind of landing point of why I think that Paul would say that we should prophesy in part and not in whole, that we would hear some of the foggy mirror, right? But not the clear face-to-face picture this side of heaven. Why we should test prophecy but not despise it. And that's because this... Because God uh, is giving us prophecy as a gift, but he will not allow, God will not allow the gift of prophecy in his church to interfere with, with the church's growth in wisdom. The prophecy is a gift, but he will, that, that he will give prophecy to his church, and he will not allow that gift to interfere or, or keep us from the ability to grow in maturity and wisdom. So, um, you know, nowadays, you know, we don't even need stand-up comedians anymore. We all watch, like, Instagram little clips and send, you know, our spouses across the couch, you know, without talking to them, these little, like, links on the Instagram of the funniest thing. So one of my, one of my favorite guys, his name is The Layton Show, and uh, he's just a dad. Look at that guy. I mean, don't you just want to talk to that guy? He's just mowing his lawn and his white New Balances, you know, like, he's just a dad, and he's got lots of different little jokes. He's got, um, you know, things I apologize to my wife for, like, I apologize to my wife you know, that I sit in the same spot on the couch every single uh, day and it puts a divot into the cushion, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, I had to apologize to my wife because somebody on the TV show she watched cheated on somebody in the TV show, so I had to apologize to my wife for the guy that cheated on the, you know, lady in the TV show. You know, he's got, he's, he's got one called, um, he's got one called inspirational quotes from my teen, like, uh, you literally need to literally pick me up right literally now, like with some of the inspirational quotes from his daughter. And then one of the, the segments is things, uh, is, uh, is, um, uh, not on the screen there, is um, things that my college freshman text me. So I'm going to read some of my top 10 quotes from the Leighton Show of things my college freshman text me. Number one, uh, what is my shoe size, uh, Doug says, that his uh, kid texts him. Uh, number two, this is another one, college freshman text me one time, um, what is the Mac for in the mac and cheese? Like, I understand the cheese part, but what is the Mac? Um, number, number three, should I, should I or should I not press play on the washing machine? College freshman text me, should I press play on the washing machine? Number four, in filling out this, this college application, uh, should I mark that I am the head of the household? This is what the son says. <laughs> should I mark that I'm the head of the household? Uh, the girl said, uh, number five, college freshman, for my street name, I didn't know what to put, so I just put my nickname, what my kids call me at school, like my street name. Um, another college freshman asked, college freshman texts and said, so if it takes nine months to have one baby when you have twins, is that 18 months or was, was that... What's that measurement? This is like an 18, 19-year-old American middle-class person, right? Um, number eight, uh, are Presbyterians only allowed to eat fish? That was pretty good. Uh, this is a college freshman. Uh, number nine, dad, I've been looking around in the cabinet. I just can't find the melted butter. Where's the melted butter? Can't find it in the cabinet. And number 10, so that was a good one. Why, when people stop at red lights, do they always turn on their red lights in the back of their car when they stop? 
parking lights, I assume is what they're talking about. So, so what does that mean, that prophecy won't interrupt our growth in wisdom? I think it means what Jesus is saying, that I've come here and given you the Holy Spirit because I don't just want you to be servants, I want you to be friends. Servants do what the Father says, but friends know the Father's business. There's a point when the kid picks you up from college and asks you questions, you're glad that they called you, but it's like, you shouldn't be asking me this question. <laughs> you should already know what to do, right? So that's the idea, is that, 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 that obedience and servanthood plays Simon says, but wisdom is knowing the Father and knowing what he wants. That's the difference between a servant and a friend. So I'll give you a classic, classic example. Uh, my friend David helped me be educated uh, about deviated sepsis and broken noses uh, right here. I'm, I'm rooting for David to show up um, at the paintball uh, event as well because uh, David used to be a cage fighter, which is pretty awesome. Anyways, I'm not a cage fighter. broke my nose for stupid reasons. And so I went to the doctor, and the doctor basically told me this. He said, if, 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 you, if you're okay with the way that it looks and you're okay with the way that it works, then you shouldn't do the surgery. You guys remember I went to basketball, and this guy super sand me right here with his left elbow when I was going up uh, for rebound. He got me right there in the bridge of my nose, and it was like a little bit nook, nicked off crooked. And I went to the doctors, and my insurance wasn't great, and so it was like, we're going to charge you $4,000 for the surgery. And I'm asking the doctor, what do I want from the doctor? I want the doctor to tell me, should I do this surgery or not? What's the doctor doing? He's not going to do that because he wants to cover his butt, and he doesn't want the liability of making this. He's, that's, that's your decision to make, not my decision. So he says, these are the two things you got to consider, right? You got to consider how does it look and how does it work, and then you need to make that decision. How many of you guys know from that point on, I became an expert in septums? I didn't even know what a septum was. I didn't even know. I thought a nose bone like, looked like your nose. It doesn't. Have you ever seen a pirate ship? Nose bones don't actually come out. That's like you know, something else. That's not a nose. I became an expert in septums, an expert in breathing, because I wanted to know if I need to spend the $4,000, I want to know what it's worth. Right? And so that's the deal, is that we prophesy in part because if he tells you the whole thing, you can be a servant, but you can't be a friend. You'll never learn the master's business. If God is always telling you exactly what color flowers to buy your wife and exactly, you know, what time to show up and exactly what the right thing to do is, you won't get to know your wife. You won't know what hurts her feelings. You won't know what she likes. She won't know what her values are because servants are not the same thing as friends. If, you, if he just comes down out of heaven and just tells you everybody should wear masks in the Christian church, right, that's going to keep you from the experience of digging into how do I honor believers that are not as experienced as me and what do I do in terms of treating a government uh, that is not necessarily Christian? How do I respond to a government asking me to do things out of Romans 13 and submitting to them? Like, wisdom and friendship is not the same as servanthood. And so prophecy will never interrupt our growth in wisdom. This is the way that he explains it in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when I was a child, it says, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. No, oh, excuse me, let me back up. Speaking up in verse 8, in 1 Corinthians 8, when he first starts talking about prophecy, he's like, love is greater than prophecy, and that's why love is forever, but prophecy is for temporary. Verse 8, he says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they're not forever. Like, this is the idea. I don't just want you to do what the Father says. I want you to want what the Father wants. And friends don't have to ask. Here's the idea, right? Husbands, like, do you want me to just read your mind? Yes. You should know what your wife wants. And she shouldn't, like, to some degree, I mean, she's responsible for communicating what her needs and desires are. But after 20 years, you should probably know by now. Stay off the couch, dude, you know? Like, that's what love looks like. So prophecies will cease. And where tongues will cease, they'll be stilled. Where knowledge will cease, they'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part for now. But look what he says in verse 11. That's childlike behavior. Prophecy is for children. Full-grown maturity in the coming age looks like fully knowing and being known. That's why prophecy ceases in the age to come. Verse 11, when I was a child, I thought like a child. I thought, you know, I reasoned like a child. 
Um, I did things like children do. But when I became a man, I put away my childish ways. I just knew what the father's business was, and I did my father's business. Verse 12, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. So we're in this book of Acts, and uh, we've transitioned really in the first category. The first, first eight chapters of the Bible is showing the gospel is portable, that it's you know, making lame people stand up and walk and going, moving around like the temple could never do. Brick and mortar could never go around and prophesy and heal and preach the gospel. And so the gospel is portable. And then it talked about the gospel as transition. And so it caused this really intense debate to circle around the Jerusalem Council about what is it that um, a Christian should be and look like. And it came down to a couple of things, not a whole list of laws, but um, that, that, it, that it gave vision in the middle of the book of Acts for what the gospel looks like even in, in future generations. And then it, it went into this missional time. And so we've just gotten done with some of the mission trips from Paul of, of, of Paul you know, sacrificing himself and risking himself and leaving the comfort of home to go out and see the, the gospel brought to the nations. And in this last little section, the theme that I see um, is sacrifice, that, that Paul is going to risk not only the money that he's collected to give to the Jerusalem church in the middle of famine, but also sacrifice his life. And so, so as he tears himself away, we talked about last week, from the beach of Ephesus, where he said goodbye to the church of Ephesus, he makes his way into the interior of Jerusalem, into modern-day Lebanon, and he has three different stops in this chapter that we're going to read about today, three different times that although the Spirit is, is calling him to lay his life down, is prophesying to him to go to Jerusalem and then ultimately to Rome to preach the gospel and potentially lose his life, while God is telling him to go forward, the church continues to try and hold him back. That the church in the Holy Spirit prophesies that he shouldn't go, while the Holy Spirit inside him from uh, Romans 19, or excuse me, Acts 19, Acts 20, Acts 9, has told them to go into Rome. What do you do when there's tension within prophecy? What, what do you do when prophecy and wisdom are wrestling with each other? And I think through the passages we would read it for the rest of our time together that we would see that prophecy and wisdom together work together to reveal God's will. But verse 21 says it this way, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed against a, a straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there, Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus, and passing to the south, if we sailed, uh, we sailed on to Syria. And then we landed at Tyre. So he's island hopping, and he's doing a farewell tour, giving farewell addresses, I'm sure, at each one of these beaches. And he's showing to them uh, that he is going to be obedient to what the Spirit has prompted him from the day of his salvation. He's going to suffer much at the hands of the Gentiles. So he's continuing on with the word that God had always said over his life. And he lands at Tyre, and there's a ship, and he's unloading this cargo, along with all this gold, really, that he's carrying for this church in Jerusalem as well. And uh, we sought out these disciples. Now, these are second, third generation disciples that they never made personally, but these disciples are multiplying throughout, you know, the ends of the earth as God had prophesied earlier on. And they stayed there for seven days. Like, like Paul is a proximity missionary. He is not removing himself because of any of his promotion or any of his fruitful ministry from just being with believers. This is like part of his ethos, part of the way he does things is to constantly be in community. And so look at what it says there in the next verse. Through the Spirit, not through the flesh, through their own desires, through the Spirit, they urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So in the Spirit, Paul is flint, set, and stubborn to get to Jerusalem. Through the Spirit, this church is telling him not to go to Jerusalem. And when it was time to leave, they continued on their way, all of them, including the wives and children. You see the heartstrings they're pulling here? Like, it's not just that he's you know, going off to be a militant soldier in the name of the Lord. Like, these are children and women and families and people that care about one another, and they are sacrificing and bleeding and, and, and crying and hurting along with Paul as he's going out to be obedient to the mission that he's called to. 
And he's accompanied, and they accompanied them to the city. I love there that there's a disagreement, but there's also accompaniment. Like even, even if you don't agree with somebody 100%, you can still carry their bags. You can still go with them according to their obedience and what God has called them to do. And so there at the beach, we knelt down and prayed, because that's what we do in season and out of season. When we have clarity and when we have confusion, we pray. Verse 6, and after saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and then returned home. So this is the question that all the commentaries are debating when you read about Acts chapter uh, 21, is like, who's right and who's wrong? Both of these people are saying that they're in the Spirit, and both of them are saying uh, there is some warning ahead that in Jerusalem there's some problem and turmoil for Paul. And Paul is trying to be convicted to the word that he got from a long time ago that he's supposed to go to Jerusalem, and he keeps running into. This is not the only one. There's going to be two more examples of churches that are telling him that he shouldn't go in the place that he feels that God is telling him to go to. What do you do about that? And so there's debate about who's right and who's wrong. And, and as I studied and shoot on it and worked on it, you know, this week, the way that I land, and I suppose, you know, everything's up for discussion and debate as you read the scriptures and wrestle for yourself, is that I'm not so sure if both of them aren't right. Like, I remember when uh, me and Kyra first got married, we got married at 21, and uh, we lived in Greenville, South Carolina. We had made a deal at the very beginning that while I was student teaching, she was going to work, and while she was working, I was going to work at Starbucks, and we kind of worked that thing out, you know, during the senior year of that long-distance relationship. Maybe have a long-distance relationship went on for 24 months. It was super tough. And I can just remember, like, that word in the very beginning of this verse in 21, the tornness that we felt. Like, going, there was no clean decision. How many of you guys have experienced that before, that in life and in ministry, like most of the time, the reason why decisions are hard is because it's not clean. It tears at you. And so I remember we were sitting there, and it's like, Kyra, we were like, man, we, were, we, had, we had no problem having babies. That's one thing about me and Kyra is we've been uh, fruitful and multiplying for a very long time, since 2006, right? And so we were already pregnant with Rose. We're going to go like halfway or one-third or whatever down the coast uh, from Indiana, we're going to South Carolina. We don't necessarily have all the jobs lined up. That's a risk. We're saying goodbye to a family support system that is, uh, is there for us. We're, we're basically committing to the first couple of years of my daughter's life, like, away from grandparents, right? But yet again, like, financially speaking and spiritually speaking and the things that we had set the relationship up on, that was the decision that we were trying to make. And what I'm trying to say to you is that in staying or going, neither of those options were clean, right? Isn't that life? is that in decisions and even in prophecy that none of the things are actually clean. Like I think, as I read this passage, I think that Paul was listening to the Spirit and trying to go to Jerusalem, and I think the church was listening to the Spirit and trying to get him not to go because that's the heart of God, right? Like if prophecy doesn't hit this church and beg Paul not to go, we might mistake and get the picture that God is just this insensitive, like masochistic, loves to just send his kids off to get to suffer in, in a prison if, if the church doesn't beg him not to go, we miss that side of God's heart. We don't get to see that God's heart is torn. God's heart, like, wills that no one will perish, right? But yet people still perish because prophecy doesn't always eliminate ambiguity. Like, God is decisive. He is singular in his purpose, and he always executes his plans. But that doesn't mean his heart's not torn over things. That doesn't mean that his heart is not torn over sin. Like, he allows for humans to choose because as C.S. Lewis says, if you don't have choice, you can't have love. So he's torn. He says, I'd rather have love and have choice than have control and have perfection, right? So he allows for people to choose at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But, but just because he makes that decisive decision doesn't mean his heart's not torn. That Jesus, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, what's he praying? Like, I will do this if you want me to do this. But I'm torn. 
And this is what I think we need to understand about prophecy is we think prophecy is this thing that can cut down with this sword and divide, you know, black and white and, and, and get rid of ambiguity and, and, and create clarity. It doesn't always do that. Even the most prophetic of us, right, even Paul in this church, are having to look into gray situations of gray ambiguity and step out in faith because prophecy is never going to rob you of your opportunity to grow in faith and in wisdom. Prophecy is not just to eliminate ambiguity and give the clarity. It's, it's to draw us into the heart of God, not just to do what God is saying, but to actually know what God wants and do what God wants. And so that's, I think, what, what the nature of prophecy is. And so here's um, kind of where this intentional question will, will land um, in just a moment. But, you know, as, as, as I navigate, you know, the world of prophecy and the world of biblical wisdom and the world of community and the world of accountability, like, there's three things that I think help us get to the, the will of God. And we talk about this all the time at the church, and that is, Number one, it's the word of God, meditating day and night when there's decisions to be made and when there's not. It's the people of God submitting to one another and checking in. How many of you guys know that probably if there's a decision that you're not willing to check in with your wife and your small group, it's probably not the right decision, right? And then ultimately, also the spirit of God. Is there something that you've already said? There's this idea like if you don't have a, a, a word about what God is saying about, about your life, about the the mission that you're called to, and probably even the kids that you have in your life, if you don't have a word over your life about what you feel like God has called you to do in a general sense, you should probably go get a word about that. You should probably go ask the Lord what he thinks about you in a very particular way because I think that that is all part of the process of navigating um, the will of God, of discovering what the will of God is um, for our days. So next he goes on to verse 7, and he says, We continued our voyage to Tyre and landed at Ptolemus, the second stop where we were greeted by brothers and sisters and stayed there for a day. Leaving the next day, he reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who, were prophesied, who prophesied. Now, at a glance, this seems like a really random anecdotal thing, and I kind of wondered about it this week of why this is included in the middle of the two sandwiches there of the end of this passage. But I think there's a lot of things going on. The first thing that I see here is that Philip, this guy was actually the deacon that was back in Acts chapter 6, probably crying over Stephen as he was being killed at the hands of Paul, who's now coming back to visit him. He's visiting the best friend or one of the best friends of a man that he killed in his past life. So that's interesting, right? And Philip is not called uh, a deacon anymore. He's called an evangelist. And so it seems that at the beginning of his life where he was called to wait tables and serve people, he's now called to go out into past Ethiopia and preach the gospel to um, outsiders. And so Philip is called evangelist. But not only is he not just a deacon turned into an evangelist, he's also now a dad. And that's an office of ministry that he's called to. So Philip is a dad, and he has four unmarried daughters that prophesy. And so there's two comments that I could make about that that seems like why it would turn up on our page in this part of the study, is number one, I kind of wonder if he's put this in front of Paul to in some ways show him the sacrifice more clearly of what he's about to give. Like Paul, we understand, if he was married, was not married at the time of Corinthians, was probably walking out his life mainly as a single person. And there's a level of um, sorrow and sadness as we read these pages as he's walking by these single women that maybe in another lifetime, in another way, he could have married. They were Christian women, and they loved the Lord, and they were daughters of a person that was part of the church. And this is, in, in many of the ways, the grieving process, right, of when you're saying yes to Jesus, it ultimately means you're saying no to a whole bunch of other stuff. And what does David say? Like, show me the stuff that I'm sacrificing. I don't want to give you something that costs me nothing. And I wonder if in some ways there's a, a, a sadness and a, um, a, a melancholy to this verse that God is showing him maybe a life that could have been. 
But the other thing that I think that it says, you know, in the categories of social things back in that day, for four women to be unmarried and to be prophesied is a pretty weird and strange scenario. I mean, for that day and age, for, you know, women to go on being unmarried and to be prosperous and for women to prophesy is kind of like against the norm and against the grain. And it just kind of reminds me, like as a Chinese pastor in the South, right, that sometimes the uniqueness that you have is like a difficult thing to carry and steward, but it's also a beautiful opportunity for you to do and say things that others can't and won't say. Like, we need to embrace, right, for these women, they're not sitting there going, oh, I must have missed God's will, and I'm not supposed to be with this, and I'm not supposed to do that. Like, they are in God's will, outside of the social norms and categories, doing exactly what God wants them to do. So I just want to ask you, like, what do you have in common with most people? You know, there are certain things that, I don't know what kids call them today, basic, right? Makes you basic. And they're just common and normal. And you drive a Honda Accord, and you have an iPhone 12, and whoop de do. Like, you have the same things, and you fit in. That's a great thing to fit in. But it's also a good thing to stand out. Like, what is holiness and sanctification but to stand out? And if there's unique things, like Paul says that you shouldn't desire to be married. And one of the reasons why, if you desire to be married, you have less time to think about what God is saying to you. So it kind of makes sense to me that a woman that's not married has more of an opportunity to hear from God than somebody that is married that has kids. If you set up a person that has a family and somebody that doesn't have a family and race them towards a prophetic word, you better put your money on the one that's single because they have time to listen to God. Right? And so where's the idea is like we're oftentimes thinking about these obstacles and, and what is God doing in your unique situation that maybe without that perspective you wouldn't be able to see. So it says in verse 10, after we had been there for a number of days, a prophet named Agabus, there he is, the guy that prophesied about the famine and had proven himself as, as a prophet, a foretelling prophet or a foretelling prophet, comes down from Judea and he has another, another prophecy. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt and he tied his own hands and feet. This is like old school Jeremiah, Ezekiel, like using the image and the symbols to illustrate what God is trying to say to his people. Same God, same prophet, same spirit, even in the New Testament speaking. Coming out um, over, over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and his feet, and he said, this is, the, uh, the, this is what the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now notice, notice that the prophecy that Agabus gives is insightful but it's not interpretive. Like, it's, it's revealing what's going to happen to Paul, but it's not telling him what he should do about it. This is the warning. Like, this is what's going to happen. You know it. The people back there at Tyre, when they were prophesying over you, knew it was, was going to happen. But none of this thing is being directive. It's not saying, so therefore, you need to do this, and you need to do that, and then A, and then B, and then C, right? Because here's the deal. What's, what's the answer? What, what is the will of God in this situation? It's up to Paul. You know what friends do that servants don't do? They make decisions. If it's obligated to me, it's not an offering. It's not a gift anymore. So Paul has given him the authority and the responsibility to make a decision about his life. And that's what I think is troubling to us Like when it comes to prophecy is we want prophecy to remove us from the onus and the responsibility of making a decision. We want it to remove us from the responsibility of faith. And so we try to swish the eight ball and ask all the prophetic words and get all the clarity and ambiguity out of our life because we don't want to operate in faith. But if you had a five-year plan right now and you knew who you're going to marry and how many kids you're going to have and what church you're going to do and what the next steps is, you know what you wouldn't need? God. You wouldn't need faith. And so God's not going to give a prophecy that robs you of your opportunity to wrestle in faith, to wrestle in scripture, to know the difference between punishment and the discipline of the Lord, to know the difference between fear of the Lord and love of the Lord. Like, he's not going to circumvent us 
from the opportunity to wrestle with his will. Because if he just tells us what to do, I don't need to know who he is. And so it's, 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 he's giving this opportunity for Paul. And so it closes up in verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded one more time with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul's a leader. Like, what makes a leader? What makes a leader? How do you, you know, are you born with it? Do you learn it? Scripture says a leader is a follower of Jesus. If you follow Jesus, you put yourself in a place where you can hear a word that matters more than any other word. You know who people can't follow? People that don't have a word. People that don't know where they're going or who they are and are just snatched up by all the distractions and intimidation and go left for one minute and go right for the next minute because they don't know what God is saying to them. And I think this testing is not only proving to Paul and to the churches, but to us, this is what a leader looks like. This is what a Christian should look like. Like you should know the will of God so much that even a prophet named Agabus who prophesied about the famine could come down and you'd know the difference right, between the emotions of the children and the women on the beach and the word of God. And you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't be swayed by that. So there's a steely resolve. This is what he says. Like, it's not that he's heartless and cold and calloused. He is torn, but he's not undecisive. He knows where God is leading him. When he heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem, but Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Like, to be obedient and to walk in faith is not to be without emotion. It's not to be untorn. It's not to sit in the discomfort of ambiguity and have to wrestle with the idea of moving your family and the idea of offending somebody by wearing a mask and offending somebody by not wearing a mask. Like, prophecy will never evacuate us from the concerns of wisdom, of having to work that out in our communities. He says, I'm ready to be bound. Like, it's my choice. This is the thing. Like, our missionary offering to Jesus is never going to be obligated. Like, we want it to be a wedding registry with a target gun, and we just show up and we just go to Tokyo and then go to Beijing, and I'll just wait till God tells me. It's not going to happen because it's not a wedding registry. It's an offering. It's a free offering. And, God, and so Paul's making decisions, not God's making decisions. God showed him the future, gave him the people to surround him, but, but Paul ultimately has to take the onus and responsibility. He's culpable. I'm ready not only to be bound, I'm ready not only bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up, and he said, well, this is the will of the Lord. How do you know the will of the Lord? How can you test and prove the will of the Lord? Is it because there's a big prophet that comes into town, and they just tell you what your life is? Is it because, you know, you listen to a certain set of sermons by a guy, and you're like, that's the guy that I'm going to follow and be just like him? Like, is that the will of the Lord? What seems to be the will of the Lord is way more ambiguous and way more time-consuming and way more heart-rendering of the will of the Lord is to wrestle and wrestle and wrestle in the tension and the ambiguities of life to dig at what the will of the Lord is. And when you have everything that you could possibly get out of that conversation, you still have that gap of faith to say yes and take the step, even if you don't have all the answers ahead of time. That's the will of the Lord is what seems to be with Paul. And so that's the question I would have for you is... um, is what is it looking like in your decision right now, if we could put that equation back up there on the screen, to discern the will of God in your life? What is it looking like right now in the grayness and in the tension of your life to make you know, hard and difficult decisions? Like here's the, here's the encouragement part of discerning the will of God in your life. Like, let me just burst the bubble. Like he's not going to make you go to Africa, right? Like you're like, oh, all the big people that I know, like, they sacrifice more, and they travel more, and they just have more pain in their lives, and they must, 
Go to Africa, and one day, he's just going to hit me over the head, and he's going to drag me kicking and screaming to go to Africa. And here's the answer. He's never going to drag you to go to Africa. He's never going to make you. So that's, that's encouraging. That's comforting. He doesn't want obligation. He wants offerings. So he's not going to demand and nickel and dime you so that you go to Africa. But here's what he might do. He might work on you and change your heart till you want to go to Africa. And here's the deal with that. If this is true, if this is how God talks to people, like if he doesn't talk to people through eight balls and tell you to go left and right and buy 2% milk and do every little thing and prophesy every little like action that you ever take, like if that's not what he's doing, here's what that means. Number one, that's really awesome that he entrusts his people to be sons and not slaves. Here's what it also means. It means with great freedom comes great responsibility. It means that hearing the will of God is not passive. Like the word wait in the Bible, when it says wait on the Lord, inquire of the Lord, like the reason why he punished or blessed the Israelites is because they did or did not inquire in the Lord. You know what wait on the Lord means? It means to like wait on the Lord's table. Like if you're a waiter, you know, like you can't wait for that guy to come into the kitchen and ask for your water. You got to go over there and ask him, does he want water? And so with great freedom comes great responsibility. It means like if we are not actively, actively pursuing and seeking out what is the word of God saying about every issue, then we're not going to be able to discern the will of God. Like if through the COVID thing, you did not meditate on Romans 13 more about what does it mean to be a church submitted to the government, you missed the will of God because that's the will of God. He wanted to teach you about that, right? He wanted to teach me about that in that season. If you didn't read about like Corinthians and what your body is and what your body belongs to, then you missed the will of God because you were looking for a pie in the sky answer about the direction that you should have had and you missed the active pursuit of God's heart for a moment in COVID that we won't get back actively pursuing the will of God. If we are not actively in people's faces, asking, here's the thing. If you are making a decision that is controversial for your life or for somebody else's life, and you don't ask somebody else that disagrees with you, and you know who they are, you know the people you can ask that are going to give you the answer you want, and the people you're going to ask that are not going to give you the answer you want. If you have not asked people that disagree with you the way that Paul did, I'm probably going to argue you're not going to get a, as clear a resolution picture of what the will of God is for your life. Because even if you decide not to wear the masks, right, the person is going to tell you the way they feel about that, and you are going to, your heart and how you wear the mask is going to be different having the conversation with the person that disagrees with you, right? Isn't that true? Lastly, the Spirit of God, like if we're not actively asking, like how is God speaking, if God is speaking and he's going to speak to us about our kids and our jobs and our ministries and our future, and we don't actively ask him that thing, then we're missing a huge part of what I think God would want to tell us about where we're headed. And so those are the three things um, that I thought we might consider um, as we consider the will of God and the decisions that we have in our life, particularly when it comes to bringing the, the gospel to the nations. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. 